Welcome to Prio. Welcome to this podcast, which is part of a project we have here at Prio. Prio is a Peace Research Institute Oslo, and the project is called FAIR. It's a project about the ethics of peace negotiations and the ethics of mediation. And we find this to be a really important issue because there are so many conflicts that uh, need to end. And uh, when they end, they normally end in some sort of negotiated agreement. But how does one do that in a way that is fair, that is inclusive, that is just? So these are the sorts of issues that we are trying to discuss. My name is Henrik Suisa. I'm a research professor at Prio. I'm actually sitting in the US right now because I'm doing some research over here. And all of us in this podcast are sitting in different locations, but we feel like we're in the same room anyway with excellent technical equipment. And the one who is conducting the interview with me is the co-lead in this project, my good friend and colleague, Christopher Leden. Thank you, Henrik. So nice to have uh, you and Jenny with us here. Jenny Lundsen has contributed to our project with a study of women's inclusion in the Malian peace process. And Jenny is at the University of Lund. She has previously been at uh, PRIO, and she has been part of this project also in the PRIO capacity previously. So uh, Jenny, could you tell us a bit about your interest in this topic of the Malian peace process and also a bit about yourself, please? Thank you, Christopher and uh, Henrik. My part in this project has been uh, on the Malian peace process, which I uh, wrote my PhD about, or I wrote my PhD about women's participation in the Malian peace process and the promotion of gender equality norms. And I think, uh, well, uh, I visited Mali uh, in the first year of my bachelor studies. Then I went on a study trip to Mali, and I think ever since I, I have uh, had a sort of um, interest in the country, which I think has a fascinating history. And also uh, then after uh, the current conflict broke out in 2012, uh, it also became uh, very relevant. Uh, and also I would say that the interest in Mali in Europe or in the West increased a lot because uh, with the establishment of the UN peacekeeping operation, MINUSMA, and also, um, I mean, Norway opened an embassy in Mali in 2017. So, so there was a lot more interest in Mali. And when I started researching women's participation in the peace process in 2017, there was a big international presence in Mali. So my interest in this topic is uh, quite large. <laughs> I wrote my PhD about it, as you, as I said. Yeah, and that's that's what we love about these uh, podcasts because we are talking to people who are really deeply interested and invested in what they are writing about. And that's what happens when you're out there in the field. So we are essentially going to talk about uh, two uh, different things, but closely interrelated today. On the one hand, Mali, the country of Mali, the tragedy of Mali of being dragged back into conflict after so many people were optimistic 20 years ago that it had put conflict behind it. And then gender norms and gender inclusivity, which is a uh, deep-seated and important ethical issue in itself. Uh, it's about whose voices are at the table. But before we get to that, tell us just a little bit about the context of this conflict in Mali, which erupted or re-erupted in 2012. Just briefly, so that people will know. Maybe you can even tell us 
exactly where Mali is for those listeners who are unsure. Right. Yes. <laughs> so Mali is a, is a country in West Africa. It is um, bordering the Sahara Desert and, uh, and uh, uh, several other neighboring countries. It's, it's landlocked. Um, and it is um, a country that has, uh, it's a former French colony. Um, and also it's, uh, I mean, it is a poor developing country and it, it has a history of uh, conflict and rebellion, especially in the north. Uh, which uh, where uh, the Tuareg populations have rebelled at several times, uh, also before independence from France, but uh, several times after that as well. Uh, and the latest uh, instance was then in 2012. And this has, I mean, as I said, it has historical reasons. I mean, Mali is a very big country. It has a huge territory. The population is not that big compared to the territory, uh, and especially in the north, it's it's uh, quite thinly populated, also because of the the geography, I guess. But it has also a lot of the resources concentrated in the south, and the and the capital is also in the south. And this has also been a point of contestation where uh, sort of how resources are distributed. So the northern uh, parts or regions have felt marginalized. They have felt that. Development funds have not been coming their way and they are not included in decision-making, for example. Uh, so these are parts of the reasons why they have been rebelling. Of course, it's very complex, but uh, to simplify a bit, <laughs> you could say that. Uh, and then, as I said, uh, in 2012, um, actually, uh, there was another rebellion, and uh, which was also then uh, accompanied by a, a coup d'etat. So actually... Because the Malian army was uh, was quite weak, they were not standing up very well to the rebels, which led to a coup d'état, uh, because so a military coup d'état. Uh, but uh, this actually only uh, further weakened the army, right? It, uh, so it allowed the rebels to expand, but also because the rebels allied with a lot of armed groups who were mostly uh, jihadist. So these alliances uh, were used to kind of uh, take over territory in the north. So in the end, they had, I think, uh, more than half of Mali's territory was uh, occupied uh, by these uh, either Tuareg rebels or jihadist groups. And this is when France uh, intervened militarily and kind of fought back a lot of the, this uh, rebellion, uh, reconquered a lot of the territory in the north. And then this kind of set the stage for ceasefire negotiations in 2013. So ceasefire negotiations followed um, and a ceasefire agreement was agreed to. Um, and then in 2014, uh, they started the more comprehensive peace negotiations. Wonderful. And in these negotiations, you've been uh, asked to uh, identify a specific controversy which has a, an ethical dimension. And which controversy is it that you uh, focused on? Yes. <laughs> As I said, I have uh, researched uh, women's participation in the Malian peace process. And uh, in fact, uh, women's participation was very controversial in the peace negotiations. 
all and also in the in the ceasefire negotiations. So in the in the case brief that I wrote for uh, the FAIR project, I wrote about the ceasefire negotiations that took place in Ouagadougou in Burkina Faso and the peace negotiations that took place in Algiers in Algeria. So in the Malian case, uh, when they were going to have the ceasefire negotiations in Ouagadougou, uh, there was uh, no women uh, invited to these negotiations. So some of some women from civil society, they found out about this and they also really wanted to participate. <laughs> they had this like sense that we should be there. It's important that we participate. But they, they were not invited. And as I said, the ceasefire negotiations took place in a different country, uh, in a different city. Um, also, they didn't actually know where uh, the negotiations were taking place. Like They didn't know the venue. Uh, but still, they uh, decided to travel there, four of them. And, uh, and then they were calling around to everyone they knew, trying to find out the location. Uh, and in the end, they found out. Uh, and then they just showed up and were like knocking on the door, basically saying, hello, we want to be here to participate. Uh, and I, and I, I heard this story from uh, several of these women. So they told me that they um, first they came there and they were not allowed to, to come in, but then they could come into the room. And after a while, they, they also found some chairs for them. And then they had to sit and wait for their turn to speak. And while they were waiting... They were like scribbling down their demands uh, on a piece of paper. And when it, when it finally was their turn to speak, they spoke there about their demands, what they wanted uh, to achieve. And in the end, this list or this uh, what they had written down became a very big part of the preamble to the ceasefire agreement. Hmm. And... and uh... But they met. They met some resistance, right? And and what what were the reasons why someone would resist their participation? I mean, I think um, in in uh, in the ceasefire negotiations, um, I think that they just didn't uh, think it was relevant for these women to be there because they were uh, representing civil society. Um, and uh, it was really, I think at that point, at least according to these women, the men were fighting over positions and power. So it was a very kind of uh, tense moment for sure. And also, uh, yeah, I think they didn't uh, find it necessary or relevant for the women to participate. And this is also the question that kind of comes back uh, all the time when you talk to different actors about this. Because women, the, and this is the controversy, basically, because the women think that they have a right to be there. They think they need to be there. And they think it's very relevant for them to be there. And they think it's extremely unjust that they are ex being excluded. Uh, but then other actors are, are often asking for what is the contribution? Uh, what, what are they going to contribute? Uh, and that the women have to have a, a clear contribution or a clear message and I mean, this is, uh, of course, a relevant question. So what were the different arguments that they used for being included then? You said it that, that they, they felt they had the right to it, but how did they justify that claim? Yeah, so uh, maybe um, because also the, so the ceasefire negotiations were not that long or um, 
But then the peace negotiations the year after that went on for, I think, almost a year, uh, like with different rounds of negotiations. And what happened then was that the women, they went to Ouagadougou. So now they had already started to get expectations. So they were extra disappointed when they were not invited again. But in Algiers, there were a few women. There were a couple of women uh, who were part of one of the delegations of the armed groups and a couple of women who were part of the government delegation in different capacities. Um, But uh, many of the women that I talked to in Mali uh, represented civil society, right? So, uh, And they said that they wanted to be there to represent the women of Mali. So there was also this question of who they are representing and, of course, whether they can claim to speak on behalf of the women of Mali. But uh, what many of these women from civil society also claimed was that the women who represented, for example, the armed groups or the government, they could not speak on behalf of the women of Mali uh, or on behalf of women as a group, then, to say it like that. And and I also, I'm, I'm not sure that they these women always wanted to or would have wanted to because I also talked to some of the women who uh, were there representing the government and they were, you know, they were saying like, I was there to do a job or I was there representing uh, my government. Uh, and then, you know, sometimes they would be like, yeah, and I was also uh, happy to represent women, but that was not why I was there in the first place. So so there was this, um, how should I say? I mean, yeah, this a little bit is tension because also it was interesting how many of the activists that I interviewed would, they said like, um, there were no women in Algiers. But then I found out when I started talking to people, I found out, but there were like five women there. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> um, and, if, and of course they mean, what they mean is that there were no women representing women. Were representing us. Mm. And then there were these uh, international uh, uh, actors uh, facilitating the process and there were some mediation in, was some mediation involved. Was there pressure uh, to include the women from the outside? And uh, how, uh, what's, how, how was this playing into the mix? Yeah, I think... Um at least back in 2014, 2015, I think there was very little pressure, actually, from uh, any uh, international um, partners. I think, uh, to be fair, the UN uh, tried, um, but their top leadership didn't seem to prioritize it. And also, um, obviously... The negotiations took place in Algiers and the, and Algeria has uh, historically a very important role as the mediator in the Malian conflicts. And it was not a priority for uh, Algeria or the Algerian mediator. It was also not a priority for, for France, uh, I think. So, uh, and I think that matters because uh, what we know from existing research is that it's usually, I mean, in peace processes, usually women uh, or women's activists, they have to campaign for their participation. Uh, but they are only successful if they have the support of actors uh, inside the process or who are supporting the process. Hmm. Right. 
And then, uh, and then in your uh, case brief, you then zoom in on questions of how, when, and which women uh, participate. And could you just take us quickly around that, although the listener could also go in and read the details in that brief? Yeah, I mean, that's how I uh, understand the controversies over women's participation or how I see that broadly taking place. I think um, because, I mean, so one controversy was over how women should participate And then we're mainly talking about whether they should participate directly at the peace table or indirectly through different sort of uh, consultative mechanisms. And the the women, of course, they they think they should participate directly, whereas the parties or and mediators often, or in this case, they uh, wanted uh, something more consultative. Then uh, the when is about when women should participate in a peace process. So uh, you could uh, think about peace processes as having many stages, sort of in a, if you think about it in a linear uh, way, which is, of course, also to simplify it a lot, but for, for, uh, it makes it easier. So uh, you have the sort of pre negotiation phase, you have the ceasefire negotiations, you have the peace negotiations and then you have the implementation or reconciliation phase which comes kind of after a peace agreement has been signed and uh, again the women of course they wanted to to be present at the peace negotiations and they wanted to participate and 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 be heard also uh, at the peace negotiations whereas uh, the parties in particular thought that women would have a much larger role or at least that was their argumentation that uh, women had a much larger role to play in the reconciliation phase, sort of after the peace agreement had been signed. And of course, they also have a large role to play in that phase. But maybe it's not an argument to sort of exclude them from other phases. I mean, we don't really know much about whether women will be included in the reconciliation phase if they are excluded from everything else, right? Right. Yeah, this is this is this is such a, a helpful way of disentangling this question of of, uh, of women's participation, and also in terms of uh, the general question of inclusion and representation and participation in peace processes when it comes to civil society organizations in general, other types of actors. I think this is uh, really uh, also directly applicable to other groups in these processes. So it's. Uh, Take us then to this question that you already touched upon in terms of whom yeah. to be included. That's the last one. That's the last one, right? The who, so or the which? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> the yeah, but and the the last controversy was uh, over which women should be included, and I think this is also a huge um, question in peace negotiations or peace processes in general, and also for other. Um, yeah, not only when it, we're talking about women's participation, right? So here it's more, well, I, what I talk about in my case brief is mostly whether it should be uh, women's representatives uh, from civil society or women's organizations, those who sort of then claim to represent the women of Mali. Uh, and this is, of course, something we should also uh, be a little bit critical of. But uh, the other, it's sort of, that, that is one category. Uh, and the other is the women who are part of the delegations of the parties. So when you, when you have peace negotiations, the parties will have their own delegations and they can then, of course, include women 
in those allegations. Yeah. Exactly. This is, uh, this is as, as Christopher said, a really, really interesting overview of not only the peace negotiations over Mali, but also more generally about inclusion. You are listening to a podcast from Prio. It's linked to our FAIR project on the ethics of peace negotiations and mediation. We are talking about the peace uh, negotiations over Mali taking place in Algeria from uh, 2014 to 15 with a true specialist on the issue, Jenny Donsten great for Christopher and myself to be talking to you today. We'd like to delve into some of these issues that are related certainly to Mali, but which also have more general ramifications. And one of them we've essentially just touched on, you know, the uh, way in which uh, women are included, but also other groups that could be excluded, but clearly are stakeholders and uh, that that could be a deep-seated ethical problems problem. Uh, there were mediators in uh, this case, who helped this uh, peace process along. Algeria and then the African Union, ECOWAS, even representatives of EU, you lay that out in your excellent policy brief or case brief, uh, rather, on this issue. What do you think mediators should do? What is their responsibility when it comes to exactly this issue, pressing for more inclusion? What sort of mandate do they have? What sort of abilities do they have? Yeah, <laughs> well, uh, thank you, Henrik. I think that is, um, oh, it's a, I think it's a very, very big question and a really difficult one. And um, in a sense, uh, well, I, I think the answer to that, it depends really who you're asking. I think mediators themselves also differ very much in, in their positions on that question. Um, to some extent, I think that uh, if you as a mediator represent an organization that adheres to certain norms and values, then I think that uh, there is a responsibility to promote or at least support those values. I think many mediators find themselves um, challenged in doing so. Um, but I mean, obviously, I personally think that uh, women have a right to participate. Uh, and I think it's, I mean, what we see, especially from the Malian peace process, and not only like, not only the peace negotiations, but also what has happened after, because the, the, the support and, uh, and active promotion of women's participation uh, in the Malian peace process really changed after 2015. There, the, the pressure from international actors, especially the UN, but also other other um, partners uh, or international uh, members of the international community, that really changed a lot. And this has also changed the dynamic in the peace process. And now women are actually participating uh, at a, at least in numbers, much uh, at a much higher level than before. So uh, so it's. I mean, based on, on what we can see from the Malian peace process, it actually matters what the mediators and the international uh, community does. So I think in so I think the responsibility is actually quite large if you take that mm. into consideration. And and when it comes to how that um, responsibility is maintained, uh, we often associate the inclusion of women and other groups with sitting around the negotiation table. 
And peace negotiations are often reduced to this idea of the negotiations that happen in this room. While, of course, a peace process and the negotiation process is uh, much more uh, complex and multi-sided. And you have the negotiations around the table, but then you also have things happening in the vicinity of the negotiations and you have the consultations within the different parties. And uh, there are also more formalized forms of civil society consultations or also national consultation processes and so on. And in, in this case, I think this civil society consultation was set up as a way of uh, including uh, women's groups also. So could you say something about whether this is actually um, fully a, a valuable replacement uh, of being in the room or did it have a secondary role in the process to be then limited to a role in a consultation outside the negotiation process uh, room? Yeah. Um, well, I think, I personally think that a um, efficient consultative mechanism, which allows uh, those actors to to influence the process, is better than women sitting at the table without any influence. But uh, this was not really what happened in the Malian case, though. <laughs> I mean, they yes, they set up a, a consultative uh, civil society uh, hearing. Um, during the Algiers negotiations. And this was a result of uh, quite a lot of pressure from civil society. So it was not, a, it was not only for women. I mean, it was for uh, all uh, kinds of actors and groups uh, from civil society, including women's organizations, including uh, victims of the conflict, including youth organizations, uh, labor unions, etc. But at least those women that I talked to who either participated in the civil society hearings or who were, I mean, part of the, the group of women's organizations that were campaigning around the peace process, these um, actors, these women felt that they were not listened to. So they, they didn't feel that they had an influence on the negotiations. So, so for them, this civil society hearing was not particularly meaningful. And this is, you know, then we come back to this uh, feeling of uh, fairness or, or justice, right? Because it doesn't feel fair. Why are you, why are you there uh, if you're not being heard? On the other hand, uh, to, like I said, to have a seat at the table and then not actually have influence is, of course, also a problem. But here I think, and I think in, in some ways um, it's very complex, right? Because these... Uh, especially in Mali, the women and the women's organizations, they were very fixed on getting a seat at the table. And I think this uh, was, um, in some ways, it became uh, difficult for them because the other more critical actors were then constantly challenging them on, okay, but what are you planning to contribute? What are you contributing to the process? And today they, they have... Um, 30% women in the highest decision-making body in the peace process. And, and people are still asking, but what are they contributing? And this is, of, and, and of course, people will always be asking that, and it is a relevant question, but we also have to ask, like, 
everyone around that table, what are they contributing, right? We cannot only, and this is also in a context where, uh, you know, women got a seat in this um in this peace process at the in this um so right now they have 30 percent of the seats on the moni- uh, agreement monitoring committee which is the highest decision making body of the peace process and this is very impressive but they uh, got those seats at a point where the peace process has been stalled i mean nothing has really happened in the peace process in that period so nobody has contributed much to the peace process since then so you cannot really um you cannot really evaluate their contribution or anyone else's contribution to the peace process in this time and i think also another important point to make is perhaps that we i don't think we know enough of uh, what happens once you get a seat at the table and how you kind of translate that into actual influence on the process so, so f- especially for activists, it's much better to get a seat at the table with the possibility to have an influence on the process because you are much closer than to be in this consultative mechanism where it's very easy to kind of just cut you off and and put everything to the side. Mm, That's interesting. I I think we've all been in processes where someone said, well, you can't be part of it, but you can sit on a consultative body. And we realized, nah, it's not the same thing. It's a way to kind of, okay, we'll give you that. But thank you. These are really important insights. Let's talk a little bit about one of those uh, really difficult questions that often come up that has to do with with culture. Uh, That's when you come into a room like this or you're a mediator in such a situation and you hear statements or things being said that you react strongly against ethically. But you also realize that you don't want to uh, be a spoiler, someone who stops the progress because you are reacting to something that's being said. Maybe there's a cultural background that you don't fully know or at least should respect. And that, of course, could come up Uh, in situations having to do with gender. Say someone says, and you have hinted in your research that these things happening, that, you know, women have no no place here. You know, they uh, shouldn't be in mediation. They should be in the kitchen, these sorts of things. How, as, say, a mediator in such a process, should you react or should you react at all? Yeah. I mean, obviously, I've never... um, I haven't been in that situation myself. I have only heard about such situations in in peace negotiations. And, but I mean, and I think it's tricky because as a mediator or or a supporter of the peace process, the main goal is to support the process, right? And you have this, you really want uh, the negotiations to go well. So it is probably a very difficult moment to stand up and say something. But at the same time, I'm thinking about similar situations in other contexts, at workplaces. I mean, how, uh, in a sense, if the peace negotiations are a work space, (laughs) it's a very special uh, place to be, but I mean, everyone there, or not everyone maybe, but like in, it is an official setting, right? So I think maybe we can, uh, to some extent, draw an allegory to how we would behave in a workplace if we observe that kind of behavior. Um, and of course, it is extremely difficult, but I think I think uh, it's also, it depends. It is, again, this, like, what is the responsibility of the mediator? But if we do agree that, you know, uh, on certain uh, uh, norms, 
uh, then we also have a responsibility to uphold those norms. And I think that there are ways of addressing at least outright explicit uh, statements. Uh, and to because I mean, the it is not everyone is going to agree, right? Uh, and it's also like I, I know that there the international um, mediation team in Algiers also had women as members of their team. Not a lot of women. That was also a criticism. But I mean, for for uh, for women members of the international mediation team, it is also uh, a problem to hear the chief mediator say that women belong in the kitchen. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I think this is really interesting because uh, others we have talked to, and you've been part of some of these uh, discussions as well, Yeni, have said that it's quite important for mediators also to create certain ground rules uh, before the talks start. And they shouldn't be too narrow, but they should still be relatively clear on exactly such things, you know, the sorts of language that we shouldn't use around the table. So it's also a question about trying to create those uh, ground rules. Right. So I just want to say that uh, your way of analyzing this really brings out some of the key uh, findings of our project so far, which is that uh, an issue like participation um, in a peace process is uh, intricately linked to for instance, wh- exactly what type of negotiation you are in, whether it's the ceasefire negotiation phase or the negotiation of a comprehensive agreement. And by having both these, both of these uh, phases in your case, you also um, exemplify the, the difference in terms of what's at stake. And also in terms of how the um, uh, actors behave, we just talked about that, and how the uh, processes, the negotiations are organized. Uh, for instance, when it comes to the location, whether it's in the capital or whether it's outside in a foreign country, uh, uh, with Algiers as uh, kind of uh, as as a different site, allowing for a different dynamic. And then uh, we also focus on principles. Uh, uh, lastly, uh, which principles that inform a negotiation process and. There's a strong push for having women's inclusion as a fundamental principle, at least when the UN is involved in a mediation process. But then the, 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 the different nuances show how such a principle should be understood in con- connection with these other dimensions, right? So I just uh, thought when coming towards the end that I would challenge you to uh, reflect on this question of whether there are certain principles relating to this question of fairness in a negotiation that you think should probably be valid for any negotiation process, at least when you discuss a comprehensive agreement. I know this is a tricky question. If there are any any principles that should always be valid? or Yeah, relating to women's participation. Is there a is is there a sort of a, a baseline of women's participation that you think is uh, unavoidable? Um, well, I mean, I think, yeah, I I I I think so. I think that the it needs to be um, considered 
how uh, you will at least um, include the perspectives of those who are not uh, necessarily um, part of the groups that have taken up the weapons, but who have been affected by the conflict. And if uh, and of course that is not only women, but uh, but I think that uh, any peace process or peace negotiations needs to consider how those voices will uh, be heard um, in the process. Definitely, even if the main uh, uh, warring part is do not accept that, would you think that it would be uh, even uh, necessary to have that as a basic premise for peace if the alternative is continued warfare? Uh, well, that's. I don't think that's exactly what I said. I think uh, I think that the uh, premise should be a responsibility to look into options or opportunities to consider mm. how it could be possible. Because I think that uh, what is actually very often lacking is that willingness to look into the, the options and possibilities. And yeah, maybe the parties will not always be um, very interested in that option. Uh, but at the same time, I, I think that very often, um, especially at least when you talk to... Um, because if you talk about women's participation as a sort of very abstract or fundamental value or, or norm, then you can get a lot of resistance. But if you talk to uh, a lot of actors about, um, you know, the, the experiences uh, of women in the war and whether these are relevant, then, then I mean, and a lot of the armed groups, they actually think that, you know, they, they have uh, important women in within their groups and they think but they might not think that the women belong at the peace table but they don't necessarily think that their opinion doesn't matter so i think there's always an opening to discuss how it can be taken into account and of course ethically speaking what ethically speaking what you are saying is that no really important stakeholders should be excluded I mean, that's, that's the, in a way, the negative formulation of the same obviously important positive point. That a baseline should be that uh, truly important stakeholders, and I think women are obviously important stakeholders in any society, in any uh, sort of negotiation process, should not be excluded. So I think that's, that's an excellent conclusion. Is there anything else that you'd like to add for us when it comes to you know what comes out of this situation that you have studied in in mali before we we say our final goodbyes and thank yous well <laughs> there's so much to be said of course uh i think um uh well i i think that uh, i want to reiterate this point about the sort of sustained pressure i mean i think mali is a in, in a, a very fascinating case uh, because when I started um, studying uh, the peace process in Mali it was uh, really um, considered a failed case in terms of women participation and um, but it has gone from that to today representing a sort of best practice it took a really really long time and as I said there was very little uh pressure from the international community in the beginning but when that changed a lot also changed um, in in the peace process and 
And of course, uh, the, this, the achievement that they have today with 30% women in the agreement monitoring committee is not uh, without uh, reservations, in a sense, if you could put it like that. But I mean, there are many important aspects to this. It's also about uh, sending a signal uh, about promoting certain norms about women's participation and also um, uh, role modeling, I think, for many. Uh, and it means a lot to the women who are participating, of course. Just before we end, I just want to come in, come in and just uh, emphasize that um, we're now pushing you into a territory that you're, uh, that is not your own field of research. We're inviting you into our field of philosophical reflection and thinking about ethics. And you're coming to it with your expertise, uh, on this case, uh, as a political scientist. And we're very uh, grateful for having you and, 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 and pushing you a bit in, in, into this and something I ha would have wanted to ask you about if we had time was if hypothetically speaking it would be acceptable if uh, there were all men in in, uh, in a, only men in a peace negotiation if they uh, represented women's interests sufficiently or whether it's actually necessary to have a woman around the table in order to live up to this standard? That's a question for a later discussion, and I'll give the word back to Henrik. Well, thank you. This only shows that we have more to uh, talk about, Jenny. Uh, if you would like to give a very brief response to that interesting question, no, well, well, it's a big one. And obviously, it's a case-by-case -case thing you would have to judge as well, which is a fascinating thing about these uh, podcasts. Uh, we are entering into some really interesting cases that are interesting cases in themselves quite apart from the ethical issues they bring out. But we, of course, try to delve into exactly those ethical issues. And one of them is inclusion. There is no doubt about that. And one of them is gender fairness. So it's been a pleasure and honor to have Jenny Lundsen with us from Lund University in Sweden, former good colleague at Prio. Uh, that pleasure has been uh, all Christoffers and mine as uh, co-leaders for this project called FAIR. Thank you for listening in and we look forward to continuing these conversations. Mm -hmm.